Thanks, guys. Oh, it's the second week of Blueprint. I hope you guys are excited. I didn't get to wear like the Blueprint t-shirts because I have to dress more formally than that. But I wanted to show my commitment by getting a tattoo because it's cool now, so it always will be, right? And I had to get another one so that it could be in a place where you could see it. So, um, the good news is, is that some of the technical stuff is all up. We've got the uh, first couple weeks on audio now. You can get it. It's not in my Mickey Mouse voice, but in Greg Walter's much more voluptuous and baritone, um, whatever. And um, it's also in the podcast that you can download the podcast for free and listen to the whole book on audio if you're driving around and don't have a lot of time to read and so on. So we wanted to make that available for, for you. Um, Last week, we talked about the reason we're doing a series called Blueprint, and it is because modern life has created enormously stuck and cluttered lives for us individually, if we just go with the flow, and it produces, because those people gather together in churches, it produces really stuck and cluttered churches. And what we need to do personally and as a church is really get back to a gospel foundation that focuses on the heart of what it means to live out the gospel practically in real life so that it can be focused and clear and simple enough that we can have the kind of freedom that Jesus intended for us to have. But in order to understand that, we've got to have a clear enough structure, kind of like a blueprint is, that takes something relatively complex, simplifies it as much as possible, but not simpler. So that's what this series is all about. It's six weeks. The first week was about connecting with God, that we're meant to connect with God. The second week is also about connection. It's about the fact that we need to connect with others. You and I, if, if you believe in Jesus and belong to him, you are part of the family of God. You're part of the body of Christ. You're part of what the Bible even calls the bride of Christ. That is your identity. It's who you are. And you have to live in that identity. You're meant to connect deeply and meaningfully with the family of God. So before we get into that a little more deeply, um, I want to show you a video that we did of a story of a couple from this church. Um, and everything that happened here has happened in the last year. And I just, I want you to see it in a story before we talk about it in its theology. Let's watch together. Do I need help? I grew up in a very dysfunctional home. My elementary, middle school, high school years, I was dealing with verbal and sexual and physical abuse from family members. Basically, my life turned into a hot mess and it led me to an attempt of suicide four years ago. And that was where I heard God's voice saying to trust me. It was from that point on that I got just that glimmer of hope and peace, and I ran to church basically. And my pastor there connected me with a mentor, uh, Bible studies, women's groups. I was at church almost every day of the week. So I grew up going to a Methodist church up until I was about 16, and my parents separated. And then we all kind of stopped going to church, so faith just wasn't a part of my life. So after college, I moved to Madison to work at Epic. A little less than a year after I moved here, I met Heidi in Minnesota, and then she ended up moving here. I knew he wasn't a believer, and I was. And I knew that was my number one priority for dating someone. But for some reason, I kept dating him. I didn't understand the importance of it. I was just like, well, yeah, it's 
know, she believes that, I believe this, it's fine. Like, we obviously have a connection, so I'm just gonna go with that. I prayed about it a ton, and I, I just never really felt, I never felt convicted about it. I still went to church with her, I was curious. I wasn't like trying to become a Christian, it was just, I just wanted to support her and it was important to her, so I wanted to learn about it. I tried to connect with a church here in Madison and I couldn't. I went to various groups, I volunteered and just never felt like I had that community support. I just felt like I was at a standstill with my faith. We eventually came to High Point through Chris Engelman, who I had worked with at Epic, and so he was inviting me pretty consistently, like almost every time we saw each other, to come to High Point. So finally, like, Probably soon after he left to go to seminary, Heidi and I actually went to High Point. After Heidi and I got into a point in our relationship, I proposed, she accepted. We're like, well, Chris is gonna be a pastor, so let's see if he'll marry us. He got back to us and was like, hey, I can't marry you guys because Nate's not a believer. That was kind of a moment where I was like, wow, this is a big deal. Like, this isn't just, you know, just a little belief. It, like, this is kind of a foundation of, of a life together. When Chris said that he wouldn't marry us, it was the first time I had been faced with that conviction. And that's why it's so important to have yourself surrounded by other believers. Because when it's just you, you're only going to hear the things you want to hear. So that's when I really started exploring Christianity as, like, hey, is this for real? Chris connected me with Pastor Nick, and Nick came out to Epic a couple of times to have lunch with me. And then we also got involved in a small group at Nick and Alexi's house. And it was there that I really connected. Just being around Christians that were talking about real, like real issues and real things about life, like that kind of conversation just doesn't happen in the day to day. So to be in a group that really delved into such deep, meaningful things, it was, it was great. It was four months before our wedding when we got engaged, and that was when I just started questioning it. I started praying more. I started having more quiet times, trying to see what I was supposed to do. And I connected with Alexi. Said, "Hey, like, am I supposed to be postponing my wedding? Like it's two weeks from now." And she just said, "I don't like. I don't think you should. It, it seems like he's really close." I went home that night. It was the first time I really brought it up, just between us two, and. I just came out and said, do you believe in Jesus? And they said, well, I prayed last night for the first time, so I think that means I believe in Jesus. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it does. So we went to church that Sunday. That was a Thursday night. And met with Nick and prayed with him. And he immediately said, when's your wedding? And we told him, and he said, I'm free. And he offered to do our wedding. So we got to have a Christian wedding, very intimate. We had 25 people there, and it was amazing. One of the things that Heidi and I are doing now with our house is inviting people over and hosting small groups so that hopefully people can come to church and get connected with a small group. That's, that's what really pushed me across the faith line was going to small group and just being around believers and really feeling the Holy Spirit in there, like in the room that we were in, and, and connecting in general is just so important. I know firsthand that life has a little piece missing when you don't have that. And it, it got me out of the darkest hole, like literally rock bottom, with 
an attempt of suicide. And after I was at a standstill in my faith for a year, it finally pushed me to grow. And it was uncomfortable. And times I didn't want to hear certain things, but we have been truly blessed. And I can say for the first time in my life, I feel at peace. So don't be scared when church is over. Don't just bolt out. Try to find somebody that looks friendly, that gives you a friendly smile, and stop and talk to them. And that might change your life. I know that going to small group and getting connected changed mine. Sweet. It's a little, it hurts my feelings a little bit that like Nate and I talked and the thing he found most persuasive was like being at small group at my house. You know, I like to think I'm pretty persuasive in person, but one of the things about reality is just that community in some ways is more persuasive because it's making arguments that you just can't make as an individual person. It's showing how do we love each other. It's showing that we act and live differently than other people and people get to experience that. And that turns out it's much more persuasive than when somebody says that just verbally. Now, if it's, if it's a basic part of Christian faith that you and I are meant to be a part of the family of God in a meaningful way, um, one of the things that you have to ask yourself is what are, we gonna, what are you gonna do with that? Because for a lot of people, I think, there's this frustration that somehow the social part, the personal interacting with other human beings part of Christian faith is somehow not part of the faith in its purest form. It's somehow, it's like institutional, it's like organized religion, it's somehow an addition to what really could be a pure form of spirituality. And um, you and I, if you're a Christian and you believe that, you really need to be disabused of that notion. Um, I remember it was like 19, maybe not, not 19, it was like 2007 when I got my first like Android smartphone. I've been a Verizon customer for a while, but I think lots of companies do this thing I'm going to criticize. I remember when I got my first phone and I was like, oh, this is so awesome, I'm gonna love it so much, right? And what I found out is that my phone company had put a bunch of apps on it that I did not want and didn't like and couldn't get rid of. And it was just like, well, if you take our phone, you gotta take all the stuff that goes with it. Mm-hmm. Even though you pay lots of money to use it. And I just, I still think that that's crazy. Right? And you can't, you can't, you can, I've tried to uninstall them. You just can't, the only thing you do is like jailbreak your phone, which is like, take all the software out. It's, it's a harrowing process and voids your warranty. <laughs> the, the point is, is that, if you know, and you know what it's called? Like out in the techie culture, it's called bloatware. Because not only do you not want it, but it actually takes up memory and slows down your phone, which is awesome, right? Here's the thing. A lot of people who have come, even people who've come to Christ and believe in Jesus and call themselves Christians and feel fairly serious about that, a lot of people really feel like the social, community, interpersonal aspects of Christian faith are essentially Christian bloatware. That the pure operating system of Christian spirituality is our relationship with Jesus. Our quiet times, we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit does this stuff in us, and like, I help things, and I, I sometimes feel sentimentally, positively towards the poor, and that's real spirituality. And, and you know, all this other institutional church, you know, it's, just, it's just bloatware. I mean, it's just apps the church wants to load into my faith that I don't want. And they're like, well, you can't have one without the other. And it's so frustrating. And here's the thing that you need to realize. That is not true. 
It's not true. The social aspects, the relational aspects of Christian faith are the operating system of the whole program. They are so embedded to the very nature of Christian faith that you can't even talk about Christian faith in any even remotely biblical sense without the absolute embrace of a full social, interpersonal, communitarian, fellowship, friendship, togetherness aspect of what it means to be a Christian. One of the things that Christian pastors like to do because it's really easy to search on your computer is to talk about all the times it says in the Bible that we're supposed to do things to one another. Like they're fundamental parts of Christian faith and they should be done between Christian people. The most famous one is in John 13 where Jesus says, "Um, by this all people will know that you belong to me if you love one another. So Jesus claimed the whole proof of his own divinity and that we really believe in him and belong to him is whether or not Christians actually love each other really, right? But it's not the only one. It's a piles of one another's, right? So in Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. 12.16, live in harmony with one another. 14.13, therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. 15.7, accept one another then, or a less delicate translation, put up with one another. Just as Christ put up with you, right? And then it keeps going. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Did you see that one this morning? We just don't obey the Bible. Agree with one another. (laughs) Serve one another in love. Bear with one another. Speak to one another in poetry and song. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Submit to one another. Forgive all grievances you have against one another. Teach and admonish one another. Spur on one another. Do not slander one another. Love one another deeply from the heart. Have humility towards one another. Offer hospitality to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Have fellowship with one another. Relating to each other as the family of God and the body of Christ is absolutely foundational to what Christian faith is. One of the problems we have culturally is that our, our relationship words have been hollowed out. We've got no-fault divorce. Fellowship sounds like fluorescent lights and styrofoam cups and people having uninteresting conversations. Community is this enormously generic word that churches have started to use. And people talk about building community in the city. Have you experienced, I don't know what your experience of community in the city is, but if I told you this is what we're trying to build in the church, imagine the seven neighbors that geographically live closest to you. And imagine having as close a relationship here as you have with them. Like, that just makes me want to hurt myself. Right? There's no... The idea that, oh, we're at the urban makes people closer together, not true, right? This, the, all the top zip codes where people kill each other are all urban zip codes, okay? There is counter evidence to that. The point is, I, I love the city. I, I love the city, but listen, our words are hollowed out. Even friendship, we use it in a, in a functionally utilitarian way because of social media. So you've got 970 Facebook friends, Right? Some of them are from high school. You just keep on there just to make yourself feel better because their lives have just gone to the pooper, you know? And, like, you know, everybody fits a role. So you have these little likes and you all like the same stuff and everybody fits this role. Like, these are the people I like to eat ribs with and these are the people that I claim I'm a vegetarian with and these are the people that I like to, you know, and these are the people I play flag football with and and everybody has their little niche. In fact, I was talking to Alexi about, about my friendships in Madison. I was like, you know, I have some really good friends but they're all role players. I have a really good time with them when we go bow hunting. 
I have a really good time with them when we go do whatever. And, but they're role players. It's not a holistic, now I realize I'm a fairly eccentric person, but that's what friendship is like in the modern world. The kind of attitude and understanding and focus and identity and character that we build around the concept of being with each other is really hollowed out. But here's the thing that's really interesting and hopefully helpful is that the biblical examples actually aren't that hollowed out. Bride, body, family. They're so fundamentally human that even in our sort of narcissistic, vapid culture, we still can't gut these words. And it turns out that there might be some actual divine wisdom in the revelation of the Bible. So let's go over the three of them relatively quickly. I need to go forward like 19 slides. So the first one is that we, if you're a Christian, you are part of the bride of Christ. One more. One more. You are part of the bride of Christ. That is, that you, with every other Christian, are becoming something beautiful together. And I don't mean that mainly like we're making it happen. I mean that mainly that Jesus is making it happen in his church, but he's using us with each other to accomplish it. But you and I belong to the bride of Christ, is what the Bible says. It says it in Revelation a couple of times. There's a point in John where John the Baptist said, I'm not the Messiah. The bride is for the bridegroom, meaning the Messiah was going to come and he was going to have a people for himself, and the bride is for that groom, right? This is one of the most famous ones that connects the two in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see the parallel already? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, and we are members of his body. You see how the two metaphors come together, body of Christ? Turns out that every bride has a body, and so those metaphors go together decently well. But here's, here's part of the most important concept around, sorry, around the idea of a bride. The most important concept is this. Is not, it's not to make men feel uncomfortable with spiritual Christian metaphors. That's not the point, okay? The point of this is to give you some kind of understanding of Jesus' attitude towards his church. That is all the people who believe in him. The point of this idea is ultimately that we belong to him. But the idea is, what is his attitude towards us? Because many of us have a pretty cynical attitude towards the church. And what we need to understand is that is not Jesus' attitude. If you talk to a thousand men in and outside the church in a candid conversation who've been married more than 10 years, you're going to get a certain number of them that are going to be cynical about marriage. And you're going to talk to a certain number of them that are going to be cynical about their wife. But here's the thing, nobody, no man is cynical about his bride, right? There was this movie in the early 2000s with Catherine, what's her name, and some guy significantly shorter than her about like this girl who was like in 28, she's a bridesmaid like 28 times, and he was like a wedding writer and was like totally cynical about marriage. And there's finally like the drunk scene where the two people from different worlds come together through the utilization of alcohol. And so they're having this like heart-to-heart discussion and the guy's like, she's like, are you really this cynical about marriage? And he's like, he's like, yeah, I totally am. He's like, 
But there's actually, there's one moment in all the weddings that I cover that actually I wait for and I love. And he's like, it's the moment when the bride comes in and you see the look on the guy's face. I mean, the poor idiotic sap just always looks thrilled. He has no idea what's coming, right? But like, even in that like artistic, modern, secular cynicism, it's believable that this male character that has like no place for marriage, hates weddings, like makes fun of this girl for being in love, like he still, to make him human, recognizes, no, be cynical about their bride. And I have yet to be to a wedding where the groom comes in and the bride goes up here and don't try it. Right? I don't care what you think about the church, okay? Whatever you think about me, I'm a worse man than that. Everybody in this room is a sinner and a pretty bad one. We treat each other ridiculously. We're so self-interested. There's so many things, reasons to not be impressed with us. But listen, the Bible says that Jesus is waiting on his bride. He is forming in her and working in her so that he can present her to himself. Like his whole purpose is him standing up there and getting to go, that she would come and he would present her to himself radiant. No spot, no wrinkle in her clothing, beautiful, fully formed the way he longs for her to be and that she would come and that is his attitude. When um, Paul was leaving the, the elders of the church in Ephesus and he was going off to get himself killed, he brought them all together on a shore and wanted to talk to them before he got on the boat. And he said, listen, he said, keep watch over yourselves and over the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Jesus is not cynical about his church. He's not. And if you are a Christian and you are cynical about the church and even about Jesus' desire for you, we need to undergo an attitude adjustment. Because Jesus is not a worse groom than the most cynical human man who ever got married. He is the least cynical groom about his bride there has ever been. He loves her, he waits for her, he's building her, and he purchased her with his own blood. That is how he feels about the church. And not just the abstract church of like abstract Christians and abstract places. We're talking about actual beings. We're talking about you and me. That's how he feels about us. That is our identity. And that is what we're meant to live in. The second one is that we're part of the body of Christ. Right. There's a number of places in the New Testament. It's a footnote in one of the chapters for this week. Five or six places where the body of Christ is explicitly talked about. But this is the most extensive one in 1 Corinthians 12. Now the body is not made up of just one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. 
And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all, if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable we treat with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. Now, again, this is not a metaphorical suggestion for us to generally understand if it's helpful. The Bible declares in many places, this is our actual spiritual identity. Everybody who is a Christian is bound together by the Holy Spirit, each in their own part, purposed by God, to fulfill a certain role together to be a unified body. You can take three ideas from this that are just easy to see and to take away. One, we have a coordinated contribution potential, like a body. We're meant to be coordinated in our actions with each other. We all do different stuff. And we need to recognize that because Do you remember how he says, one of the weirdest parts of the passage is where he's like, you know, there's some parts that don't need special honor, there's some parts that we, you know, we treat with less honor, and then there's some parts that are completely unpresentable, and we cover those up, and that's one way that we actually point to their significance, right? One of the things that that's meant to sort of focus on is that there are parts that you don't think about that when they break, they seem like the most important part. Like, right, like your lumbar four disc, You don't think about that one until it starts talking to your nervous system, right? And then it's like, whoa, that's clearly the most important part. Oh, right? You don't think about your kidneys until you have a kidney stone. That's just the way life is, right? Just a couple weeks ago, I had a stick. I was cutting this branch in like pitch black dark, and I had a stick fall and hit me in the eye and scratched my cornea. I hadn't thought about my cornea in a good while. I spent a couple days thinking about my cornea. Was that joke corny? I can't really tell. Anyway, the point is, is that, like, there's a certain coordination, right? There's a certain coordination, and you and I have to embrace it. Part of that is just recognizing we have different gifts, and we need to allow people to help us and try to figure out where we can serve best. But also, there's this whole concept in there of, like, lifting some people up more than others. Right? And the focus, if you, if you look at the verse and are careful with it, it's not saying that we should lift up and honor and rejoice in and pay attention to the parts we can already see, is it? That's not the logic of the passage. The logic of the passage says there are some parts of the body that are already in front of us and we don't need to pay any special attention to them. There are other parts that are kind of more inadvertently hidden that we normally don't think about. And there's other parts that are like a little bit socially problematic. 
And so we intentionally cover those up, right? And he said, by doing these three things, we actually find a way to put them all on the same level. That's why we do it. Does that make sense? What that means functionally for us is local churches cannot have pastoral celebrities. It's completely out. We already think about the pastor plenty, and he already thinks about himself enough. <laughs> right? We don't need to make a bigger deal of elders or worship leaders or people like that. The people that we need to intentionally elevate so that we even things out and level things out are the people that nobody sees that we couldn't live without. Right? There's, I remember when I first started doing ministry, one of the first ministries that I did and as a college student was I, I was a kindergarten Sunday school teacher, which was a total violation of the, like, do the body part you are. Because I had just no capacity at teaching kindergartners. But, I, you know, but this place does not function without that. This just doesn't function without people saying, I can move that chair. Like, I have the spiritual gift of not being lazy, right? It's amazing how rare that one is, actually. <laughs> right? And, like, I can hang out with some kids, and I can stay after and wipe down all the toys so that the kids that come in tomorrow don't get sick because of the nasty, disgusting things we call children that came in before them. <laughs> right? That, I mean, there's two ladies that go through every pew every Sunday after you leave and make sure that there are connection cards and prayer cards and Bibles in all the pews. They make sure we didn't miss any connection cards people laid aside. They spend an hour, hour and a half doing that every single week. They're right here after everybody leaves. There's a guy who comes in, opens things up, gets, starts to get things ready for the worship team, brings me my cue sheet, all these, all these things, before he actually has to go to work half the Sunday mornings and drive to Chicago. And then come back and try to be involved in the ways that he can. There are people who serve in children's every single week. Not once a month, every single week. Right? Now, here's the thing. Okay, so first of all, thank you. I know I don't matter. Like, me thanking you doesn't really matter. Here's the thing. Thank you on behalf of everybody who benefits from what you do. But also, thank you in this sense. It's not just what you do. It's what you communicate when you do it. That you know that you believe to the, you belong to the body of Christ, you are a particular part, that's who you are, and therefore that's what you do. That is much more persuasive to anybody who looks at it than me talking about it. Much more persuasive. And one of the reasons why I talk about this is because this is one of the things that you know in a church if people understand it or not. Talk about that a little more when we get to the next point. But then the last one is that our relationship is not deniable like a body. You, listen, you can do what you want, <laughs> denying stuff that's happening in your body, and it, it's not going to work. Right? Um, you, can, you can do all kinds of things, but eventually things start to happen, and you can, want it, you can try to deny it. It's not going to work. And y if you're a Christian, you are part of the body of Christ. You can try to minimize it. You can try to run from it. You're just going to get tired because that's who you are. That's your identity in Christ, and that's the identity you have to live in. You need to embrace it. The last of the three is that you're part of the family of God. 
Now I know for those of you who lived in unhelpful families growing up, um, that's not a particularly emotionally touching idea. But you'll also be ready for being part of a church. <laughs> um, but it is important to recognize that to the extent to which the church is healthy, it is a family. We are meant to be family for each other, and you do have a place to belong. Gene and I um, went to somebody's house this week who, who came to the barbecue, came to the first week, said, I do need to connect with God. Would you please tell me how? And so I drove 50 minutes to the east side after I spoke at a church um, on the south side, um, and we sat down with her at like 9.30 at night and talked to her about Jesus. She doesn't have any family. There's nobody. She lives by herself. And we told her that Jesus loved her and he, he wanted her to come to him and that she could be forgiven all the stuff in her past and that she would be part of the family of God. And she, she believed and she accepted Christ and we prayed with her right there and she was here last service. We got to give her a hug and it was wonderful. She belongs to the family of God. There's some people that see that as a big problem because you feel like really nice and independent. And you're like, well, I want to have more people hanging on me. Listen, there are some people here for whom if it was a healthy family, that would be an enormously wonderful promise. And it is. As you go through the Bible, it's, it's easy to kind of miss the family of God thing. But just if you read Paul's epistles, 13 letters, he talks about, he calls us brothers or brothers and sisters. Something like a hundred times. I was too lazy to count them all. It's a lot. It's well over 70. He just, he doesn't even argue for it. He just presumes everywhere that we're brothers and sisters to each other. Now think about that. Do you really feel that way? You're a Christian. You come here. You're here. You believe in Jesus. Listen, do you really feel that way? These other people all over through this room, the people who were here last service, the people who are getting beheaded in Iraq, these people are your brothers and sisters in a way that is more profound than genetics and will last eternally. The kid that needs a spiritual father and mother in the children's ministry, the college student who's never had a decent mentor yet, and their parents split and he's never seen a good marriage, right? You can go through all kinds of different situations, all kinds of different people's needs. Single mom, a single mom who ha has to work, she can't make ends meet, she's got kids coming home from school, she doesn't know what she's going to do with them for two hours. All these people, they're your brothers and your sisters. And one of the things that's important to recognize in relationship to spiritual family is this, is that family is one of those, is one of those relationships that doesn't work on the basis of the other ways we do things in other parts of society. Most of our relationships in society are economic or authoritarian. That is, that we engage in free exchange where we feel like we're getting as much as we're putting in right then. Or there, it's authoritarian. That is, somebody can make us do it. You see, family's not like that. Family is a relationship that functions on the basis of identity when it's worked into character. This is who I am. I belong to this family. And I have the character to recognize the benefits and the responsibilities and the roles that come along with being part of this family. And so I just do them. Like, I don't know about some of you who are married, but if you've ever tried to make your, make your spouse do what you think they're supposed to as part of the family, right? 
it's, it's very common when couples get married for like the first few months or years or decades. They, um, <laughs> they try to do that, you know, like I've, I've, heard, I've heard people talk about training their husband and so forth. And um, here's, what, here's what often happens. Usually the motivation is guilt. Guilt is super easy to, to fling out there. And it's, it's meant to essentially emotionally coerce the person doing it. It's trying to make the marriage relationship function as an authoritarian relationship, right? Well, what happens is at some point the person comes home and says, um, forget you. I'm not, I don't care anymore. I don't care. <laughs> Say whatever you want. Do whatever you want. I don't care, right? Or sometimes you have relationships where people are just keeping track. Are you doing as much as I am? Are you doing as much as you are? We're not, we're not really doing it. Which, of course, in a, in a marriage relationship, especially if you have a family, that math is impossible to do. Assigning every action that happens every moment of every day a value. And then somehow doing the work in your head of how that all adds up and subtracts, especially when you're not around the other person most of the time to count what they're doing and how much it counts, is impossible. And yet many a hundreds of marriage fights that have happened to people in this room have been on the basis of their perceived are you doing your share math? And the reality isn't, I mean the solution to that actually isn't making sure everybody has the right number of chores. The solution is actually recognizing that that's not how marriage works because that's not how families work. Families don't function on authoritarian Coercion, and they don't function on economic free exchange. They function on family. We belong to each other. That's our identity. And my place in that belonging gives me certain benefits, roles, and responsibilities. And in order to be the person I was meant to be, I have to live them with all the passion that I have. That's how it works. That's the only way to be a good father that I know of. The only way to be a good husband, wife, mother, child, grandparent, anything. And here's, here's what I know. That is exactly similarly true about the church. I can't make you do anything. I, that's why I try not to even try to guilt you into it, because I didn't work in my marriage. <laughs> for my wife. I'm just kidding. For me or, for me or her. It's not how people function. It's not, it's not what we are. See, if we were in a authoritarian situation where I told you what to do and I made you do stuff, then maybe I would. Or maybe I could try to coerce you and be like, well, I'll give you this if you give me that. We could try to make it. It's neither of those things. It's a, it's fit, we're family. It's, it's, a, it's a relationship of identity and character. And you see, you always know how this is going at a church to a certain extent because when people act like they think church is family, they act totally different than people who think it's economic exchange. Because if you really believe it's family and you've embraced it, not just in the identity, but in your character for what, what that means for you, you, can, you cannot not be a contributor. You've got to do something. You can't just be like, well, I'm going to free ride on this. You, it's, it's, not, it's not like, well, I'll pay for the goods and services I think I'm getting. It totally changes your attitude. And you have, to, you have to move a chair. You've got to take care of a kid. You've got to help somebody out. You've got to try to do, you, you just, you have to do something. Unless you're just like a terrible parent or child and human being. I mean, at some point, you, once you get that in your identity, you're like, oh, this is what it means to be a family member. I have to act like this. There's no other option. And it's a moral and spiritual drive rather than some kind of authoritarian drive or some kind of free exchange drive. It's fundamentally different. And you see, 
this is one of the things that makes it difficult to be seen because there's a lot of churches out there that kind of do a free exchange ministry. Like, I'll try to give you your money's worth, right? Here's what you get. You get burned out pastors. You get huge volunteer campaigns that don't get very, very many volunteers and people who sign up and then don't do what they said they were going to do. This is what you get. Because people don't see themselves as part of a family. They don't see themselves as an integral member of the body. And they don't see themselves as being and becoming the bride of Christ together. Now, when you see those things and you see their centrality, there's essentially... Hold on. There's essentially three relationships that either are going to be part of your life or that wisdom would point you to seek as being part of your life. The first is, is that you'll seek to create a connection with the movement. What I mean is this, you'll become part of a local church that knows it's part of something bigger. You'll become part of a local church. I don't mean, I don't mean you'll go around saying that you're part of the universal church. No, no, no. You are that. But you will be part of a local church with real people who are as almost as annoying as your own family members because they are your spiritual family members and you'll be part of that local church but that local church needs to recognize it's part of something bigger. It's not in competition with the gospel-believing churches around it. It cares about the gospel in the whole world. It wants to help other churches rather than pull people from other churches. It clearly, by the way it acts, the way it teaches the gospel, and the way it, it works, that it is a local church it is its own thing, and it knows and acts like it's part of something bigger. The second is, you need to be in a group where you can know and be known. You can't know two billion Christians. You can't even know everybody. You, can't even, you, probably, you don't even know the name of half the people in this room. I don't know how the names of some of the people in this room. <laughs> and you may even want to. You just can't love that many people on the level of one another that the Bible talks about. You just can't. There's only so many people you can love in a reasonable span of care in which you can help, which you can know them well enough to know what they need in terms of encouragement or confrontation, to really understand how their hearts beat, to know how they function, to know what tends to motivate them and what doesn't tend to motivate them, to know how they react and how they respond and what their background is and what they're hoping for and what their dreams are, what do you need to celebrate and how does this, you, you just can't know that for more than 10 or 12 people. Just like, just human beings just don't function other than that. And so if you're part of a church like High Point like this, and you come, and you're like, well, I'm, I'm willing to love people. I'm ready to love people. I just, you know, if it, if it kind of happened, I would, I would happen with it. It's never going to happen. You're not in the dynamic that makes it happen. That's all. And so we just call these small groups, right? I mean, you just take the group, and you, you make it small enough that that can happen. And the reason we have small groups is not because it's like the sexy thing that like everybody wants to do and oh we can have another meeting in our week and won't that be fun and I don't go to church enough and you know it'll keep people in the church so revenues will be higher like it's not what it's about what it's about is you can only love a very limited number of people meaningfully you can only love people deeply and meaningfully when you know them that's, that's all that's all there's to it 
And so small groups become a place where something that almost never happens naturally, especially in the cultural dynamics we live in right now, happens on purpose. And once it happens on purpose, it tends to happen really naturally, which is why people tend to drop out of and hate small groups in the first three months, and you can't get them to split after 12. It's just so hard to get people the first time in small group, so hard to get them to stay in it for like three months. It's like, well, it's another meeting, and I have sports games, and my kids, blah, 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 and they don't get to bed on time. I totally get all that. That's how we feel, right? But then you're with a, a group of somebody who's been in a small group for like a year, and it's functioning decently well, and it's like the last thing they would give up in their whole week. They're like, I'll, I'll give up showering, but I'm not giving up my small group. That's what it's like, because there's love there. They're experiencing something that they don't expect. Like, remember Nate in the video, he's like, people, they were talking about like real stuff. It was like deep kind of spiritual, what kind of human being am I? He's like, nobody does that. Nobody does that. Somebody does that. Small groups do. And the last is spiritual friendships. I have heard for too long pastors and Christians say, you need to have Christian friendships. No, you don't. Christian friendships can be terrible dead weight that just make your life super spiritually stuck. And here's why. Because you can have piles of vaguely Christian friendships where you do all the, all the things that secular people do together, and Jesus is not the issue, nor is your life in him the issue. What you need is a spiritual friendship. You need a number of spiritual friendships in which, in that friendship, Jesus is the issue, and who Jesus is in you and each other is the issue, and it comes up all the time, and it is the foundation and glue that holds your friendship together, and in which you do everything else friends do also. It's a, it, it has all the other stuff in friendship, but it is, it is it, it, here's what most people need to do. You've got people who they're Christians, they have all these Christian friends, but Jesus is an issue. You need to turn loose half of those Christian friends and actually get to know some secular people and have a couple good Christian friendships, probably at your small group. Spiritual friendships in which Jesus is the issue and who you are in him is the issue and you're spurring each other on, admonishing each other, pushing each other, yelling at each other, encouraging each other, pushing each other. Otherwise, if you just have Christian friendships in which Jesus isn't the issue, what you have is a stuck, useless church that's leading nobody to Jesus because all of our relationship spots are full of Christians who don't talk about Jesus. And nobody's actually pushing us to go deeper in our faith, so we actually don't grow angry about that with ourselves. What we need is we need different people in our lives and a few spiritual friendships that push us and drive us and help us. And best, especially if you're younger, that one of those spiritual friendships be somebody at least two life stages ahead of you who's older than you, wiser than you, and doesn't care if you like them or not and who just flat is not impressed with you. And they're in the relationship to make you deeper in Christ. And that's it. If you embrace in your identity that you're part of the bride of Christ, that's Jesus' attitude towards not just you, it is his attitude towards you, but it's his attitude towards us together. That the, the, the church is the dearest thing in creation to Jesus, the, bride, the groom who is not cynical at all about his bride, but waits breathlessly to bring her to himself. That you're part of the body of Christ, that we all need each other, we're connected to each other, we can't be separated from each other. We're all in a certain place, and each different part needs to be elevated so we treat each other on equal levels of concern. 
and joy. And if you recognize that we are the family of God, that the people right next to you are your spiritual brothers and sisters in an eternal and profound way that just doesn't hardly ever dawn on us, and that we have to embrace those in our identity and live them out in our character. And we need the church to build us up and to spur us on and to drive us forward to these things. We need each other to love each other on a lot of different levels. You will realize you need these three relationships to be part of a church that knows it's part of something bigger, to be part of a group small enough where you can know and be known and therefore love and be loved, and to have real spiritual friendships, not just Christian friendships, but spiritual friendships, and hopefully one that, at, le- at least one that functions as a mentor relationship. If that happens, you will find that the additional relationships that come from an identity in Christ actually don't make your life more stuck and cluttered. It actually makes it more focused, more clear, more priority-driven. It helps you connect with God much better, and it shows you what other stuff in your life actually is the bloatware that's making everything bogged down. But that this is the heart that runs everything. And it'll help you push out the right things so that your life can function unstuck and uncluttered because you know what the gospel foundation to connect with others means. Okay. As we take a few minutes and try to sing and to honor Jesus and respond to that as best we can, um, also think and try to respond to it. Prepare yourself to come up and pray with the people who will be up here if God's doing something in your heart. If you don't belong to Jesus, you could right now. Um, you could be part of the family of God. You can belong. You can be part of the bride of Christ, the thing God is dying and waiting for to bring to himself spotless and unstained. You could be part of the body of Christ. And we'll do our best to love you. We're not that great at it. You can do it right now as we sing. Just open your heart to God. Pray to Jesus. Ask him to come into your life. Say, hey, I've been wrong about stuff and I've been controlled. These are two things. I've been wrong about a lot of stuff. I've tried to be in control of my own life. I'm sorry for the stuff I was wrong about. I'm sorry about thinking I can control my own life. Please give me your righteousness, and please come and lead me. And do it right now while we sing. So let's stand together as the worship team comes up, and let's pray. Father, please help us to embrace love and joy, grab hold of what it means to be part of the family of God, the bride of Christ, and the, and the body of Christ. Help us to see it and understand it. Help us to to actually like that, not to be resisting it. Help us to not put our energy in pushing you back, but to put our energy into embracing what, you're, what you want to do in us. Help High Point become a place in which those three identities flow together and empower us to the relationships we need to have in a way that will make us stronger, healthier, more lovely, more spotless, more unwrinkled, more like the bride you've always intended us to be. But we trust you to get us there and to do your own heavy lifting. We trust that you'll even help us to trust you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.